Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program is Professor Kathy Davidson talking about how the brain science of attention will transform the way we live. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, the rapid changes to our lifestyle brought about by digital technologies is continuing to demand more of our attention. But can our minds cope with these rapid changes, and what will be the future of learning in this new environment? Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Professor Kathy Davidson. Professor Davidson is the Ruth F. DeVarney Professor of English at Duke University and the John Hope Franklin Humanities Institute Professor of Interdisciplinary Studies. Her new release, Now You See It, How the Brain Science of Attention Will Transform the Way We Live, Work, and Learn, explores this topic for a general audience. And Professor Davidson, I want to thank you very much today for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. It's my pleasure, Gerald. You actually caused a bit of a stir when you promoted the um, distribution of iPods to undergraduate students at Duke University, thinking that new learning come about from this. Right. A bit of a stir is a bit of an understatement. I think we were on Newsweek and uh, NBC and ABC News and on and on. What we did was in 2003, before there really was much of anything, there wasn't an iTunes 2, there was barely even iTunes, Apple came to us and said, what kind of technology could we partner on to sort of make a statement about students in a digital age? And I was in a very innovative position called uh, Vice Provost for Interdisciplinary Studies, where my job was, as the president of our university, one joke to break things and make things, and especially to think about how we could remake the research university, which is basically an industrial age uh, institution for a digital age, and especially an age where students have the opportunity and the possibilities online of not only receiving contract content but making it. So we decided to go with the technology students like best. Instead of going with laptops, why not try the iPod? That is what every, every student liked. But at the time, there was not a single known educational use for the iPod. And we actually thought that was a great challenge. So what we did was we gave free iPods to the first-year students. And within a few weeks, the second, third, and fourth-year students were furious at us because they said... We paid Duke tuition, too. Why didn't we get free iPods? And we said, good point. So how about this? If you can convince any professor to who's teaching a class next term to include an iPod for an educational use in that class, we'll give you, the professor, and every student in the class your own Duke-branded free iPod. Well, it was, I'm not going to say it was Machiavellian, but we did kind of suspect if we'd given iPods to everyone, they would have just stayed in the drawers or they would have been used, but nothing would have come of it. We ended up giving more students, within a semester, gave more iPods away to students who had actually invented learning applications for the iPods than we did just free to the first-year students. And there was almost no department where we didn't have a major breakthrough, and we learned several things. One, we 
were shocked that the faculty was so happy to go along with it. I think if the administrators had put technology into your classroom, they would have all protested, and, and maybe rightly so. But when the students came and said, here's an idea, Professor So-and-so, we think we could use the National Catalog of Heart Arrhythmias and change the signal processing a little bit and make it so any doctor anywhere could listen to an iPod on one ear and listen to the catalog of heart arrhythmias on another, and it would help them with diagnosis. Or we could put iPods, um, put our violin playing via the iPod into the Philadelphia Orchestra, which has put its work online, and hear how we would sound in the orchestra. There were so many things that the students came up with. It was kind of amazing. And so one professor's learned that the students had a kind of expertise. Uh, Academics aren't usually good at giving up some of their expertise, but they really let the students lead the way. And two, it kind of told students that they should claim a different kind of leadership as co-learners in a new digital age. And that, to me, was the big success, even more than all of the technology that was innovated as 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 a part of it. I mean, no one's called Steve Jobs a fool ever. And I think he probably ended up with millions, if not billions of dollars, potentially, in free R&D from these students who used this and came up with learning applications. But the big lesson was priceless, and that was we're in an era where a new kind of co-learning, not just memorizing, but really co-learning is important and vital. Is the lesson from this then that learning is essentially just going to be different in the future with uh, all these new technologies? It doesn't have to be, but if it isn't, we're missing a valuable opportunity. I mean, the school bell was the symbol of education in the 19th century because you had to teach farmers that it wasn't right any longer to get up with the sun and decide to fix the fence when the fence needed mending and then maybe to shoe the horse and maybe to have a little lunch and then maybe do one tour or another. No, you had to teach people how to come into work at the same time all work at the same time, work on the same problem, tested in the same way, be evaluated in the same way. In other words, standardization was key to the industrial workplace, and education became the place for that standardization. I would say in a new do-it-yourself interactive web environment where people have the possibility of not just learning or borrowing content, but making and contributing to enormously interesting projects like Wikipedia and other kinds of online projects that we have to teach not rote memorization, standardization, hierarchy, but how to take charge of your own education, how to assess the credibility of the information you find online, how to meld that information, tons of information, into something like a clear analytical or synthetic argument or point that you can use to forward your own book. It's a a different responsibility of the learner. And I don't think we're doing a very good job of teaching kids, including college students, how to take that responsibility seriously. Well, that that is certainly one of the critiques of new technology is that not this really critical evaluation. How do you think we developed in this sort of critical interplay or evaluation information that we're getting from these various digital sources? Well, I think the first thing you do is exactly raise the issue of credibility. And I think the best way to do that, um, and when I was writing and doing the research for now, you see that I kept going into classrooms. And the best teachers I saw who were teaching to what I call the new digital way of co-learning didn't even have to have actual technology in the classroom. But what they were doing was teaching students the cost of poor research. So I went into a sixth grade class 
where students were not only building bridges out of popsicle sticks, which I think is a you know something kids have done for 40 years, but they were doing experiments to test pencil strength, and then they were writing up their experimenting abstracts for them, and the other students would evaluate those abstracts, and then the other students would critique the critique, and they were finding their information online, but they were constantly talking about how they evaluate the use and appropriation of that information. These are sixth graders. I Actually, when I said to that teacher, this worksheet you have that the students have to fill out is very sophisticated. I don't know if my Duke students could do it. And he laughed, and it turned out the sheet was something he borrowed from his father, who is a consultant who goes into Fortune 400 companies and that are going through major technological changes. And these are questionnaires he gives executives who are thinking about how to change their company. And here was this brand-new teacher. He was 24 years old, teaching sixth graders how to evaluate the systems they operated in as sixth graders in this bridge-building project using this this management technique that his father had perfected for CEOs. I thought that was pretty amazing and an incredibly cheap, first of all. It almost cost, it cost very, very little, but a cheap way of teaching students how to be critical about the information that there is no reference librarian to sort for them. So what really then is the vision for the classroom of the future? The classroom of the future, I think, is a classroom where it's much more project-based and based on problem-solving. I think that there's probably a need for incredible rigor because, and, and uh, almost a reflex for rigor because you don't have systems that come with like a blue ribbon saying this is certified, this has been vetted, this is peer-reviewed. So you have to develop that credentialing yourself either by knowing which are reliable sources. I mean, do you go to hurtmyelbow.com or do you go to Mayo Clinic to find out why your elbow is hurting? You know, that's a, you know, there's so many different different things you have to learn about credibility on the Internet. You also have to learn how to, when you do problem solving and project management um, as a method of learning, you learn to not only think across disciplines, but how to extract as much knowledge as possible from your collaborators. I call it collaboration by difference. My own organization, Haystack, that I'm the co-founder of, and it runs the annual um, MacArthur Foundation Digital Media and Learning Competitions, is based on an idea, an idea that whenever we have a complex project, we make sure there's people on the teams who actually don't share a knowledge base, like a programmer with a publicist with somebody who knows social networking, who may somebody else who may be the content expert. And they work on the project together, but often actually start ideas in the other person's content field. And tr because we also feel that there's a kind of a tension blow happens from too much expertise. You're an expert, and that means you're not, not uh, maybe this is just from being an academic a long time. Often by being an expert in academe, means you're not so good at hearing altering points of view, alternative points of view. It's, it's, I think it's almost sort of trained within you in academia to ignore the other points of view. <laughs> yes, I think that's right. And so if we're going to teach our students how to be receptive to other points of view, we have to sort of bypass our own training. And I, I think the lesson of attention blindness is we never see what we don't see. So you have to construct the right tools, the right partners, and most importantly, the right methods that force you to see what you otherwise might ignore, might ignore just by, out of your own prejudices, culture, learning, discipline, background, or even attention. What you're focusing on, as we know, means you're not focusing on something else. 
So the subtitle of the book is indeed called How the Brain Science of Attention Will Transform the Way We Live, Work, and Learn. What is really the brain science of attention telling us about what is going on in this new environment? Well, I think for the last several years we've been in a mode of deciding that we're all stressed out and multitasking is hurting our brains and et cetera, et cetera. And I think the most interesting recent work, the neuroscience of the brain, suggests that in fact the brains, uh, and this is Rockley at at St. Louis, at Washington University in St. Louis, and Warcom and Fletcher in Cambridge, who talk about this a lot. The brain doesn't really have a baseline. The brain is very, very busy. Rockley says that 80% of the brain's energy is used in talking to itself. And uh, I like to joke that if the brain were a quiet, monotasking space, the world would have a lot more Buddhas. Because here we have an Eastern tradition of understanding meditation that for thousands of years has explored what happens um, to the quiet or unquiet and what happens when you're in a room with no external distractions, simply thinking about, not simply, thinking about the great questions of self and identity and existence. And of course, that's the time with no distraction when your mind goes crazy. So I want people, first of all, to get rid of the idea that simply by having another email or too much email, we're somehow damaging. And I I hate that, the idea that we're damaging our brains or our kids' brains by multitasking. All that really means is we've got new information coming in that we're not able to process in the old ways. And in some ways, I think distraction is our friend. If we're distracted, it means we have to pay more attention to what habits, what reflexes are not serving us as well as they should be. And that might mean relearning uh, a skill, rearranging our office to be more efficient for the new forms of attention that are required. What I think is going to happen, I think the next 10 years are going to see an explosion of ways of controlling the multiple, crazy, unsorted environment um, that comes at us every minute, it seems, um, on the Internet. And um, we're already seeing that with computer scientists coming up with control programs that allow you to sort And again, in researching Now You See It, I was able to find lots of interesting people who'd come up with extremely simple expedients for taking care of the multiple senses of the world instantly. And, you know, that's about limiting, realizing when you feel like you're multitasking because you're overtaxed and coming up with systems for controlling it. So it's less about multitasking, damaging your brain, and more about introspection. What what works for me? What doesn't work for me? How can I control this technology instead of letting it control me? It's really part of the advantage of the technologies that allows us to interact and distribute our workload among several different people. So and one of the advantages, and you point this out, is that we're able to network with other individuals, and, and that we sort of share the load exactly. more efficiently. I mean, you know, the best example of that is Wikipedia. 90,000 people have created the largest encyclopedia the world has ever seen in 282 languages. And I'm told from Wikipedia insiders that the problem now isn't what it used to be, which is inaccuracy. The problem now is the self-appointed editors are too restrictive, and they're starting to get a little too conservative and, and too you know stuffy in you know what counts or what doesn't count. And that's kind of an amusing problem to have. But I think any encyclopedia co-produced in 282 languages is a pretty amazing human feat. Almost certainly. How will our workplaces then evolve over the course of dealing with these new technologies as well? That's a great question, and to find an answer to that, I decided I was going to go to some of the smartest technologies I, technologists I met. So I ended up going to um, Asa Raskin, who at the time uh, was working on the tabs on the Mozilla Firefox 4 browser, the you know browser that has 30% 
of the market share of browsers worldwide that's totally open source, it's free, it's non-commercial, and his dad invented the Macintosh. So I thought, well, what better person to add? So I said, okay, smarty pants, you know, your browser's on my computer, you've given me these tabs, how do you actually organize your office? And it was such a simple, almost plebeian um, solution that anyone can adapt it or use it, and it's also kind of liberating to know that this young genius, he's 24, who invented the browsers for 30% of the, I mean, the tabs on 30% of our computers, um, does this. He has one screen that is not connected to the Internet. It's his best screen, his favorite screen, the best lit screen with his favorite desk chair, and he keeps his work for the day on that one. Then, in a situation that's far enough that he has to physically move his body, he has his the Internet connection with email and the Internet. Then down the hall, he has a little, the Internet ones on a kind of a crummier computer, an old one that he might have thrown out in another situation. Down the hall is still another one that has his blog and Twitter and Facebook and social media and things that he likes to enjoy. The reason he does this is pretty brilliant. He said, you know, the one thing that is damaging us is sitting too long in one position. So he's made his his office environment not only help him control information flows, but to reposition his body to help himself ergonomically and to make sure that his body just moves at certain times during the day. And then the clever thing is when he comes back to its original computer screen, no matter what else he's been doing, and he's got a to-do list, he does a little bit more techie things that most of us wouldn't be able to do, like a timed and slightly more hysterical getting um, to-do list on the cell phone down the hall, on the one with all the social media down the hall. So it gets more and more urgent as um, the longer he's away from his to-do list. But when he comes back to the work that's due that, that day, it's never gone. It's, he doesn't even have to click. It's always there on his best computer screen, just sort of humming along and waiting for him to return. I do that now. If I have a deadline, I pull out my laptop and keep on my beautiful desktop screen, I keep the work I'm doing. I don't connect to the Internet, and on my, I use my laptop for research if I need to do some research on the web to do whatever project or budget or, or a grant proposal is due that day. It's an easy trick, but it's also great that it's done by one of the most brilliant technophiles in the world and one whose dad invented the Macintosh because it says we can do this. We can all control this and these are basic human issues of how you control the tools in our life. Part of the issue is uh, whether or not we'll be able to keep up with uh, you know, the rapid advances in technology. Are our brains plastic enough to do so? Well, you know, the single largest demographic, um, fastest growing demographic on Facebook is the over 75 crowd. Um, it's kind of amazing how much, in fact, we've changed. Some people aren't changers, and I find that it's almost as true of 20-year-olds as it is of 70-year-olds. And, in fact, there's a chapter in in my book about an accident I was in several years ago when I had to go through very extensive rehab that required, like, excruciatingly boring repetitions of certain physical motions to rehab an arm that had become neurologically I mean, detached, not physically detached, but I in any kind of nerve sense, pretty much detached. And then I did all these tricky, we did robotic things and sensory things, and we used Ramachandran's memory boxes and uh, mirror boxes and, you know, every trick we could imagine to keep me um, going and to get my arm operating again. But it also was interesting to me that I would be in the same space with elderly people recuperating, stroke victims recuperating, and basketball players from the Duke basketball team who were recuperating from injuries. And again and again, therapists said, we know there's a relationship between practice and recovery, 
and we know there's a bit a, a relationship between youth and practice. Young people practice more than and rehab and work at it more than the older people. We don't know that there's a correlation between rehab and age. And I think that's a great metaphor. In this case, it was physical, but I think that's also a case for technology. If you learn something new, it helps you to learn the next thing new. And if you learn that, that helps you to learn the next thing. It accretes. It's not an on and off switch. It's a process. And you don't have to be 70 to opt out of the process. And you can be like my own father, who's 85 years old and you know still on email every day and still used to edit a... Uh, online newsletter until just about six months ago. And, you know, there's hope for all of us. And I'm not a millennial by any means. I've been teaching for almost 30 years. So if there's hope for me, there's hope for any of us. So the the message is really just keep using it, all you're a loser. Yeah, exactly. Use it or lose it. I think that's true for lots of things in this world. <laughs> I think my final take-home message is to, to calm down. We're doing an amazing job. We're 15 years into a new technology, the commercialization of the Internet, 15 years, and there's almost always in the first 15 years of any major new technology a lot of anxiety, and then suddenly you start seeing kids who don't care about before and after because they don't know. I mean, my students just this year, it's the first year when I ask my students, how many of you remember the time before the Internet? None of them do. And that's important because they don't care about nostalgia. They want to know, what am I doing now that helps? And I think, again, I'm a historian of technology. It's usually about 15 years in that people start actually looking at institutional and systemic change that will help us with a new technology. And I think we're exactly at that point right now. And, again, what I tried to do was find famous people but also ordinary people who had made that transition very gracefully and heroically simply and sometimes with great beauty and elegance in their lives. And there's stuff we can learn from those people. And um, I learned enormously from those people and feel very grateful to them for what I've learned, for all that they've taught me. And I hope readers of Now You See It can learn the same lesson. The book again is called Now You See It, How the Brain Science of Attention Will Transform the Way We Live, Work, and Learn. Professor Davidson, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I love the Grok Science Show. <laughs> well, thank you for saying. And uh, if you do have a few seconds, we would like to play the game, the Grokatron sure. 5000. I'll try it. I may fail miserably. I'm not a game person, but I'll try. <laughs> All right. Time to play the game, the Grokatron 5000. It's our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, do they see it or don't they see it? So for the following five individuals, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know whether you think they do or don't see it and uh, maybe a little reason why. Um, Preston Davidson, you ready for the game? Thank you. I'll, I'll try. I'm not a gamer, but I'll try. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Person number one, does he see it or doesn't he see it? It's uh, the actor Charlie Sheen. <laughs> Charlie Sheen needs to see a lot better. I don't think Charlie Sheen it has a lot of perspective on himself, at least from what I see on, on television and People magazine. The, the view I have of Charlie Sheen, he, he needs a lot of work. All right. Uh, number two, uh, the golfer Tiger Woods. Oh, Tiger Woods. Well, I think Tiger Woods is another person who needs help seeing it. Um, I think he spent way too much having to be perfect when he wasn't, and I think he was probably blinded by the idolatry to his own morality and his own self-perturbation, both of those things. Indeed, indeed. Uh, number three, though, how about uh, Steve Jobs? Steve Jobs, oh, that's a a tricky one for me. On the one hand, he sees it brilliantly because he figured out that we need and want not not ugly, difficult computers, but beautiful objects that respond 
to our the needs in our everyday lives, and they give us huge amounts of choice. So I love that. I don't think he sees it in the sense that the Apple Apple products tend to be very walled. And um, I, I w- if I could have any job in the world, it would be to succeed Steve Jobs, and my job would be the um, CEO of Open Apple, which is the Apple computer that's beautiful and friendly and user friendly and wonderful, but also played well with Flash and with uh, Google Docs and with open source applications and Linux and all kinds of things that right now um, the Apple computer is, is, is cut off from. I actually think that's going to be bad for Apple in the long run. Uh, all right, number five, uh, does she see it or not? It's uh, talk show host Oprah Winfrey. Ooh, you know, no, uh, she retired, of course, this year from her own show, and she started her own network. Uh, I don't know. I'm, I, I'm, I'm out of date on that. For a while, the network didn't look like it was doing too well. I don't know. I don't know if it is now, but um, certainly what she does see is the moral and social concerns of a kind of middle American uh, person, especially women, and she's seen that very well. I think her absence from um, mainstream TV is going to be very, very much missed, and I have a feeling she may be making a reappearance sometime soon. Okay, and finally, number five, uh, does he see it or not? It's the President of the United States, Barack Obama. Um, I actually think he sees it in some things. He sees it far more clearly than he's given credit for seeing. For example, we know that the new world of distributed work, where more and more people are kind of adjuncts, or ronin they're sometimes called, where they work part-time work and odd jobs, only works worldwide if you have universal health care. And so I actually think the much vilified Obamacare uh, was actually probably one of the single most important stepping stones to having an innovative 21st century workforce. And if we're um, losing our place in the world, I think um, that's the limitations that were put on healthcare, um, and especially if we rescind that, uh, is one of the reasons. Um, I do think he sees it about um, education reform. I wish he would get a little more uh, innovative. Uh, or that Arne Duncan, uh, Secretary of Education Arne Duncan would, but I have faith that they're coming around. It sounds to me like more and more they're coming around and understanding the very, very important role that innovative education and great teaching, and I, I really think we have to be more respectful of our teachers, uh, but great teachers um, have to the future of the United States. Something we can all hope for, for our kids and for all of us. Indeed. All right. Well, uh, Professor Davidson, I want to thank you very much for sticking around playing the game and, again, talking about the book, Now You See It, How the Brain Science of Attention Will Transform the Way We Live, Work, and Learn. Thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.